You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast produced by Veteran Strategies and featuring conversations with fascinating and impactful men and women who have shaped our world, our communities, and our history. My name is Robert Vane, Principal of Veteran Strategies, and your host for our discussion. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmond Construction, Leaders and Legends LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. You may find all your sales and rental equipment needs at McAllister.com. We are pleased to announce our podcast is now a member of the All Indiana Podcast Network in partnership with Wish TV. You may find Leaders and Legends at allindianapodcastnetwork.com. Thinking of starting a podcast or need to host a public meeting? Let Leaders and Legends LLC be your partner as you look for new ways to communicate your message. Please contact Chris Spangle and me at leadersandlegends.net. Thank you for joining us on the Leaders and Legends podcast today. Our guest is Professor Stephen Fritz. Professor, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Thank you for inviting me. It's my pleasure. Uh, Professor Fritz earned his PhD in 1980 from the University of Illinois. Sorry about your team in the tournament. (laughs) And joined the faculty of the Department of History at East Tennessee State University in the fall of 1984. His specialty is 19th and 20th century European history. He is a prolific author and a well-reviewed author. And I finished his book, The First Soldier, Hitler as Military Leader, which was published in 2018. I finished it just a few months ago, reached out to Professor Fritz, asked him to come on, and he said yes. The book is absolutely amazing. It looks at one of the most reviled figures in the history of mankind with not a benevolent eye in any way, shape or form, no excuses are made, but a reasonable account of Hitler's rationale for the war, his actions during the war and his leader, his performance as a military leader during the war. Um, Professor, your book is one of the best I've ever read on world war II. It's a terrific achievement. What led you to write it? Well, it's, it's, it's one of those kind of ironic situations. I, I had just um, published, oh, just um, a short time before, I guess, I guess my third book, Ostkrieg, the um, Hitler's War of Extermination in the East had been out maybe for um, a year, year and a half, something like that. And I was actually looking for a new project. And and what I wanted to do, what I what I, what I had gotten interested in, was um, the the aftermath of World War II in in Germany. So I was looking to do something on the aftermath of World War II in Germany and the, uh, Germany amidst the ruins, things like that. And I had been doing some considerable research, and and then out of the blue, I got a, an email from um, at that time the um, one of the one of the book editors at Yale University Press in London, the London division. And she had mentioned that she had just read Oskrieg and was impressed with Oskrieg. And so she wondered if I might be interested in a book project for 
Yale University Press. So, of course, I got back to her and said, yes, I'm, certainly I'm interested in a, in a book project. To make a long story short, I suggested any number of projects that, that they might consider, but she kept saying, well, no, I have an idea here that you might want to consider, and it's an idea of um, Hitler as, um, as a military leader. And, and originally, I kind of dismissed the idea uh, simply because I guess it was so ingrained that Hitler was kind of an irrational sort of um, reckless leader and not much of a military leader. So she was persistent, though, and finally um, I, 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 I grudgingly said, OK, give me a few months to do some preliminary background research and get an idea of, of whether I can kind of get a conceptual handle on this and how I might like to tackle it. So after a few months of research, I, I realized that, that um, in fact, the kind of the concept of what became uh, the first soldier began to unfold in my mind. And so I got back to her and said, yeah, I can, I can, I can do this. I have a, I have a, it, it, you know, I have a very good idea, I think, of how I want to proceed. But in a sense, uh, what you were just suggesting, I, I, I told her, I said, the thing is, I, I, I want to be able to do this the way I, the, the way I conceive it in the sense that I want to try to explain why Hitler did the things he did. I want to try to understand his logic, his rationale, how he saw the situation to a great extent and, and try to try to put the reader in a sense of, of not immediately taking a condemnatory approach, but putting, put the reader in the, in this, in the situation of, trying to understand why Hitler did what he did, not trying to excuse it, of course, and certainly not trying to justify it. But the task of an historian is essentially, I think, to explain so, um, so the reader can understand and have a good idea of why certain events happened. And, and she was very agreeable to that. And so that's, that's where the project took off. So whenever I'm in the bookstore or browsing history of the month book of the month club and you know the the next book on hitler or the next book on napoleon or the next book on washington comes up you're like what in the hell are you going to write about now that hasn't been discussed uh, a few weeks ago we had david stewart on who's written the new biography of washington which is superb and he tackled that question in kind of a in a, almost a laughing manner like yeah i completely get it so as you're researching this book, writing this book, having it germinate in your mind, how much of your thinking is, okay, how can I make this different? What's the approach that's different than all the other books on Hitler? Yeah. Yeah. That, that was part of it. In, in, in a sense, I suppose um, addressing Hitler might be, I don't know, perhaps easier than, than trying to, to, to differentiate with Washington or, or somebody else, because the, the um, typical assessment of, hit, of Hitler was so kind of uniform, so one-sided, um, and had largely been determined. I, I, I was aware of this from my earlier research that the, um, the image of Hitler as a military commander had long since been determined prim primarily by the, um, um, the early assessments of some of his former generals who were ironically writing under the auspices of the United States Army military history project after World War II. So they had, of course, heaped the blame for all the losses on Hitler. They had denounced Hitler as, as an incompetent leader who didn't understand anything about 
um, military strategy or tactics or had you know, no sense of, of um, how to run a campaign. He ran roughshod over the generals. So that was kind of the, that's kind of the standard interpretation. And so as I started to do, as I said, some of this preliminary research, the thing that fell in the place for me was I began to realize that Hitler had a much more uh, multifaceted understanding of not only military tactics and strategy, but of history. Um, he had a he had a fairly clear idea of what he thought was the the the, the sense of, his, of German historical victimization of the past. Uh, he had a, a, what he thought was a clear understanding of why Germany had failed in World War One. He had in his own mind a clear understanding of what Germany had to do to rectify uh, the defeat in World War One and to create the, the, the precondition so that Germany could become a, a, a world power, a true world power. So once I began to, to kind of see that, then, then, then as I said, it be, I, I began to conceive how I could, how I could um, uh, essentially not so much reinterpret Hitler, but I suppose give a more nuanced view of of of, um, of the um, of Hitler the man and Hitler the military leader. One of the things, and I want I want to go through this chronolo- chronologically, but I want to make sure I ask this question because sometimes and. In the heat and the pressure of a podcast recording, you forget to ask questions. So let me let me ask this one. One of the things that came through in your book, which you detail, it's one of the most fascinating parts of it. You mentioned the generals that Hitler just didn't dictate to the generals like they were schoolboys. There was a real exchange, and these generals and these field marshals. Had, they had these screaming matches with Fuhrer, with the Fuhrer, like with Hitler. Like they, Hitler allowed that. He didn't just, you know, uh, Rommel or von Rundstedt or or someone like that didn't yell at Hitler, and then they were immediately taken out to the courtyard and shot. Guderian and Keitel and and a lot of these other generals. There were real screaming fighting matches where the generals were pretty tough, pretty critical, and pushed back against what Hitler said should be done. Yes, yeah, that's that's exactly right. And that's one of the things I, I try to get across. Probably until I would say that you be, you begin to see a turning point in the winter of 1941-1942. I think certainly September, late August, September of 1942, you begin to see a turning point where Hitler is less willing to listen to his generals. But certainly if you go back to the early campaigns, 1939, the campaign in Poland, for example, was largely run by his generals. Hitler was largely um, basically a war tourist. He he basically he spent his time just, just traveling to the front and, and observing actions. Before the French campaign, of course, Hitler uh, devised his own plan and butted heads with Halder and the chief of the general staff and, and other generals. Um, who initially ridiculed his ideas only to, to have somebody like Monstein, who was regarded as kind of the uh, kind of an abrasive sort of sort of genius, but the uh, but the strategic operational genius of the of, uh, of the German army, only to have Monstein propose a plan that in, in its particulars was almost identical to the plan that Hitler came up on his own. Um, 
before Operation Barbarossa, there was, yeah, there was an exchange of opinion back and forth of different conceptions. Um, in July, the most famous screaming match, probably um, late July, early August of 1941, out outside of Schmolensk, um, where the where German army was bogged down. Partially, it was bogged down by Soviet resistance. Partly, the Germans simply had to, to pause for two or three weeks anyway to re-equip, resupply, and so forth. And that, and that, that, that's one of the examples I used in the book of the real exchange of opinions. Hitler, Hitler could have simply imposed his, um, his ideas on his generals, but instead they engaged in about a two-week, two-and-a-half-week um, kind of uh, intensive debate, I'll say. And Hitler wrote up memos uh, and submitted the memos to Halder for, for dis distribution to other members of the, of the general staff. They had a real debate as to, as to what should go on. And Hitler countered, countered the arguments of his generals with, with, reasonable, uh, with reasonable plans of his own and justified his, his decisions on the basis of, of military dispositions, which, as I, I think I pointed out in the book, uh, large numbers of his, of his subordinate commanders found quite reasonable and quite persuasive. Um, what else? Before the, um, I guess I should say at the... Um, the near disaster in, in, in mid-December, late December 1941 with the Soviet counterattack in front of Moscow. Uh, Hitler, again, was much criticized at the time for his stand fast order. But in fact, as Hitler liked to point out, at least early on in, in the dispute with his generals, that uh, his reasoning for standing fast in face of the Soviet Red Army breakthrough in, in mid and late December was based on a long memo that had been sent to him by Field Marshal von Bock, uh, the, the, the commander of Army Group Center. So Hitler simply turned the arguments uh, that, that one of his leading generals had made urging um, a, a stand fast approach and, and, and simply used it against uh, other generals who were urging a who were urging a, a, a large scale retreat. And in the end, of course, uh, Hitler was, by events, Hitler was proven, in, in, in essence, correct by events. The German army did master the crisis. The German army did not fall apart. Um, the, the situation in December 1941 did not turn into, as most high German generals feared, a repetition of the Napoleonic route of, of 1812. And Hitler mastered the situation. And, and in many respects, I think that's the, that's the turning point. That's the tipping point where Hitler begins to now perceive himself as um, more insightful, perhaps more sure of, 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 his, of his way than his generals. And, and, he, he, and it's, not, it's, not exact, it's not as if he, there's just one point at which Hitler says, I'm going to stop listening to my generals. At September 1942, with the, with the uh, developing debacle at Stalingrad, the failure in the Caucasus, Hitler begins to, to turn away from his generals. He fires Halder, uh, for example. Uh, but even in, even in the spring, winter of 1942, spring of 1943, he's still willing to listen to Monstein, for example. And he's still willing to entertain ideas that Monstein has. So what you have is kind of a continuum. It's, it's, it's not at any one point uh, that Hitler simply turns the generals off, but there's kind of a continuum. And you get to about, oh, the summer or autumn of 1943, 
and and that's when you you begin to see uh, things perhaps tilt more drastically in in favor of Hitler not giving his general's opinion as much weight as he had originally. How much of this is, and correct this question if I, I don't phrase it correctly, how much of this separation has its foundation in the fact that the war is now starting to go badly? Hitler is unwilling, unable to blame himself for the fact that the war is going badly. So he has to blame someone else, the Jews, the dirty Americans, his own general staff. Right. I, th- I think that's, I think that's an accurate observation. He's, he was, he was certainly willing to entertain suggestions from his, from his generals, uh, as long as this, as long as um, they seemed to be fruitful, as long as Germany was winning, as long as Germany seemed to be winning. Um, in addition, and clearly as the war begins turning against Germany, Hitler begins to, to kind of withdraw. You're right. He, he has he cannot admit to himself that that he has failed here, but the, but there's also in a, in a sense there's kind of a again kind of a complex relationship going on here. It's it, I think it's not so much that that Hitler just sticks his head in the sand and and um, and um, and 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 refuses to understand reality. In some respects, as I try to get across in the book, it's it, my argument was. To a certain extent, it's because Hitler, in 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 many aspects of the war, had an earlier and more complete understanding of reality than his generals did. Um, for example, I mean, you can you can you can find evidence as early as mid-August 1941 um, that Hitler already was was beginning to sense, or already had sensed, that the war against Russia was probably not winnable, and he. He, he essentially said as much in remarks to Goebbels, for example, in mid-August 1941. In November 1941, he he referenced pretty much the same sort of suggestion to, um, I think it was the Finnish foreign minister, might have been the Danish foreign minister, um, Kai, uh, Yodel at the end of the war in American in American uh, interrogation, uh, Yodel mentioned that as early as January 1942, Hitler understood the war could not be won, um, at least in the way that he originally had in, had envisioned winning the war. So, in, in in part, I think it is he can't blame himself. In part, you have the sense, which, which which again I tried to convey in the book, you have the sense that Hitler always understood that that you know, essentially for all of his bravado and all of his rhetoric, he always understood that this was an enormous gamble. And that Germany's leap into world power was always was always kind of a, a a gamble based on on perhaps timing, perhaps skill, but also a good bit of good fortune. That uh, Hitler understood very early on, um, with the growing might of the United States, that there was time pressure on on Germany. So you always have the sense that that. That Hitler's throwing the next roll of the dice because he has a sense that Germany is is always playing catch up. They're they're never quite at a level playing field, and they have to they have to play with greater skill, and they have to illustrate greater expertise, and and they have to take greater gambles in in order to win because Germany doesn't have the 
the favorable geographic position or Germany doesn't have the favorable resource position as the the Americans do or the British or the Russians. So it's kind of a kind of a complicated sense. Certainly he blames the Jews. Certainly he blames the presence of the United States. Uh, in a larger sense, I think Hitler Hitler has a sense that history itself has conspired against Germany and and that in in or, order to overturn this kind of um, verdict of history, Germany has to take the great gamble and and the great gamble depends upon essentially getting everything right. So as things begin to go wrong, he has he has difficulty um, kind of dealing with that reality. So he tends to immerse himself in details and 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 essentially kind of hope for the best, which by summer of 1943 might simply be a stalemate. Whatever Hitler's deficiencies as a military theorist or strategist compared to his generals, one of the things that you make clear in your book, and we're talking to Professor Stephen Fritz, who wrote The First Soldier, Hitler as Military Leader. One of the things that comes through in your book is Hitler's political sense was far superior to that of his generals. Is that a fair statement? And how did that manifest itself? Yeah, I think I think that's a fair statement. Certainly, in the in, in, from 1933 to 1939, and 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 maybe even in the in the in the first year or two of the war, Hitler had a very acute political sense. He he was he he demonstrated this as far back as the late 20s, early 30s in the in the Nazi rise to power. He Hitler had a had a had a fine sense of of, of the weakness of his opponents. He had a very keen sense of um, of their vulnerabilities, of their of their uh, their fears, their inclinations. So, Hitler in the 1930s, um, looking at military dispositions, and you, you'd mentioned uh, in terms of knowing knowing military strategy, Hitler actually had read, and, and Hitler probably was more cognizant of the great uh, Prussian military theorist Clausewitz than his generals were. And, were and Clausewitz always had emphasized the, the connection, close connection between military strategy and political strategy, and Hitler, in in, in the sense that, that the political, or excuse me, military forces had to be um, had to be created to carry out a political purpose. So Hitler had a very a clear sense that the the force disposition of his enemies uh, would correspond to their political. To their political goals. So, in the 1930s, if you think of Great Britain, um, the disposition of their military forces was large navy, large air force, in order primarily to protect the empire. The French had had begun construction. Of the implication of which was that France was going to stand on the defensive and not conduct any offensive operations. Hitler was acutely aware of that. So Hitler, in, 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 in kind of, in kind of uh, reasoning to the logical conclusion, Hitler essentially reasoned that if the British were going to, to uh, structure their military force in such a way as to protect the empire, they were far less interested in actual military intervention on the continent. And if the French were uh, structuring their military force uh, for, for static defense in the Maginot line, 
they were not they were certainly not inclined to use military force to intervene in anything Germany might do. So much much of what he does in the 30s seems like it's it's reckless gambles and seems like he's 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 just overreaching and hoping for the best. But most of the time, as he reveals to his closest political associates, he has actually carefully calculated the political atmosphere, and he's decided on the basis of um, military dispositions, statements, um, actions they've taken before that the British and French are not likely to oppose him in rearmament, remilitarization of the Rhineland, or the annexation of Austria, or the um, the occupation of the Sudetenland. He, he, gets, he gets all this right. The, the first big mistake he makes politically is he miscalculates uh, British resolve to go to war over Poland. And, and that, that frankly does, um, that, um, that, that kind of stuns him, his mistake there. And in many respects, Hitler was thinking logically, again, that the British and French had sacrificed a very powerful political position during the course of the 1930s. So why now in September 1939 would he fight for, would they fight for Poland? And and, and that miscalculation, I think, dogged him for the rest of the war. And I'd mentioned earlier about Hitler, you have a sense of Hitler always trying to play catch up. And his first big, his first big kind of political mistake was that miscalculation of, of British resolve. And, and he, he didn't really have an idea of how to, how to overcome that. And, and that, that kind of put him behind the eight ball, as, as it were, and, and he was kind of playing catch up the rest of the war. Going back a little bit, and this has probably been, I'm going to claim it as, as my little political theory, but I'm sure I've read it somewhere and I'm just plagiarizing. But the, the attitude and reaction of Germany after, the World, War, after World War I always and still reminds me of the reaction of the Southern states after the defeat of the Confederacy. So stab in the back for Weimar Germany, the lost cause myth for the Confederacy, for the Southern part of the United States, born from the fact, in my view, that neither side simply, they could not believe they lost their wars. I mean, we've all seen the famous scene and gone with the wind. One Southerner can lick 20 Yankees. Uh, Germany had had three significant kind of on a, on an ascending scale uh, victories in the 19th century in their war against the Danes in 1864. And then the war against Austria, 1866, and then their victory in the Franco Prussian war, 1870, 71, they had the strongest army in the world. Everybody knew it. And yet they lost the Confederates had all these great generals and this tremendous military tradition, and yet they lost. And how much did that thought, that atmosphere, fuel Hitler's rise to power in the 1920s and then obviously early 1930s? Yeah, I think that that's a good observation. And I, I think that's that, that's one of the keys to, to Hitler's um popularity one of the keys to them 
to the rise of the Nazis. And, and in, in comparison between that, and I think you're absolutely right, um, the, the, the Germany in the 1920s is very similar to Southern society after the Civil War. Both societies that have a hard time understanding or accepting that they had actually lost their respective wars. And in the case of Germany in the 1920s, I think it was even harder to understand because unlike the Confederacy, which had been ground down through the, mm -hmm. I'd say the early attrition battles of 1864, 1865. So any kind of fair-minded objective observer in, in the Southern states could basically, if they were honest with themselves, admit that, well, the Union forces had not been necessarily um, strategically elegant, but they had simply ground us down and, 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 and we had lost the war that way. In Germany, it was more difficult because as late as what May, May and June of um, 1918, German long distance artillery was still shelling Paris as late as, again, what, the first, second week in June, German forces were battling American forces about 40 miles east of Paris. That's how close Germans thought they had come to winning the war. And then to suddenly lose the war I think I think it's the way the war ended in World War One, which um, which was very very disturbing, very difficult to understand for for the average German. On top of that, I think I think there's another another factor here. It's not it's not only that the, it's not only that the, the Germans suddenly had lost and were were being forced to sign an armistice, but now it seemed to invalidate all of the suffering of the of, of German of German soldiers, the two million men who had been killed um, in Mein Kampf, for example, which is to a large extent this this kind of uh, mendacious self-stylization of Hitler. One of the one of the true one of the true passages which has kind of the ring of authenticity is is when Hitler talks about he hears them the, of the signing of the armistice and his first thoughts supposedly are. Essentially, uh, this is the meaning of our sacrifice. This is the meaning of the of the two million German soldiers who who were killed. This is the meaning of all the the suffering and the fear and the terror we went through. This is the meaning of all the millions who were wounded, uh, the German mothers who sacrificed their sons. This is the meaning that we just give up, and and that's that. Hitler. One of the things that got me interested in this project, I started reading one of my background, I started doing some of the background research I alluded to earlier. I began reading all of Hitler's speeches of his early period, 1920 to 1923. And I was stunned at how much in his early speeches, we, you have this image of Hitler ranting and raving against the Jews or various different conspiracies. Many, if not most of his early speech, speeches were actually kind of historical explanations where he is talking to his audiences, which are increasingly large, and he's basically saying in so many words, okay, you're, you're confused about why we lost the war. Uh, you don't understand why we lost the war. Here I am to tell you why we lost the war. And we lost the war because we didn't have enough resources. We lost the war because of the Anglo-American blockade we lost the war because of two or three other factors. And so here's how we address this. We lost the war because of these factors. And so this is what we need to do then to become a great power. So 
I mean, as an historian, I can point out that he was incorrect in some of this, but to German, the German audiences, uh, his explanations seemed pretty accurate. They seemed pretty believable. And so that, that gained him a lot of, a lot of seeming legitimacy. And, and if you read the accounts of that time, he never blamed the audience to whom he was speaking for losing the war. So they come out of these speeches and these events going, yeah, it's those people's fault. That's he, it's not our fault. This guy just told us it's not our fault. He didn't blame us. He blamed whether it was regimes that didn't exist any longer. By that, I mean the Hohenzollern, the imperial family that uh, had to add William II had to abdicate in 1918 or the or. Jewish conspiracies or those sorts of things or outside forces. He never blamed the German audience to whom he spoke. But then at the end of it, in, in the time period you're discussing, but then at the end of World War II, he consistently blamed the German people. You didn't deserve this victory. You didn't sacrifice enough. You weren't loyal enough. How, why do you think he made that transition? Yeah, that, that's, a, that's a good point. And, and, and you're right. It, 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 in explaining the defeat in 1918, uh, Germans were victims. Germans were the, the victims of the so-called November criminals, the communists, the socialists, the Jews, uh, allegedly, or they were the victims of, of this long kind of historical process of victimization that Germany had been denied its rightful place of hegemony on the continent of Europe. But Hitler had outlined the, the, um, the means by which uh, Germany could transform itself, could transition from victim to um, to the hegemonial power. And he had very clearly outlined this in terms of uh, uh, Nazis come to power, you build a new society based on this notion of uh, what used to be called trans socialism. The Nazis called it then Volksgemeinschaft, which in German simply being, means kind of people's community or ethnic community. In other words, you build a, you build a, 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 a cohesive society which will be resilient enough to withstand the, strain, the, the, the strains and tensions and hardships of total war. You establish uh, the preconditions for success in the war. You build up the army. You, 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 uh, you essentially promote the diplomatic um, process of, again, establishing a favorable a starting point from which to fight this total war. And then in Hitler's mind, you fight the war and you win. Um, but except Germany had fought the war and they lost, but everything else had been put into place. Um, his prescriptions seemed to have worked. He had come to power uh, to a large extent on the, on the basis, not only of his ex explanation of German defeat, but his promises for the future to build this new harmonious uh, social welfare society, you might call it, that, that would redeem the hardships and sacrifices of the earlier war. He promised to, to restore German greatness. In the early years of the war, Germany seemed to be on the verge of, of success. And then it, 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 everything had, had collapsed again, but it couldn't be him in his own mind. It couldn't be his fault because the Nazi idea evidently had been correct. And so the only, the only, the only thing that he could blame it on then was, was the German people. He had put misplaced idealism, misplaced faith, misplaced trust in the German people themselves. There was nothing wrong with the idea. 
It was simply the, the Germans, the, the Germans themselves. There's an and I had, had an interesting coda that it, the, the, the U.S. Army of occupation it, it, from from '45 through the early '50s was um, assiduous in taking um, polling, uh, you know, polling techniques of Germans and trying to get the pulse of average Germans. As late as the early 1950s in, in, in polling in the American uh, uh, sector of occupation, American zone of occupation, routinely when, 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 when American pollsters would ask the question or would make the statement, do you, do you agree or disagree with this statement? National socialism was a good idea which was improperly applied. Consistently, 50% or more of adult Germans would agree with that statement that national socialism was a good idea, which was simply uh, incorrectly implemented. So in, in a sense, you can, you can get that, that that's, that's Hitler's kind of justification. My idea was right. It's just the German people weren't ready for it or that they weren't um, tough enough or, or some, some explanation like that. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmond Construction, Leaders and Legends LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. Our guest on the Leaders and Legends podcast is Professor Stephen Fritz, who's written many books. His latest is The First Soldier, Hitler as Military Leader. It is a terrific book. I highly recommend if you are into military history, German history, or just history, uh, you will definitely get a completely different, uh, not exculpatory uh, view of Hitler as a military commander, but certainly a more nuanced one. It seems to me that in the in modern German history, German military history, they were continuously searching for an operational solution to their sort of strategic and geographical problems. The Schlieffen Plan, uh, which is probably the most famous military plan in all history, um, and Hitler's in the concept of, of Blitzkrieg, which is somewhat misunderstood and and is not necessarily as um, uh, wasn't the cure all that they thought it would be, especially in the Soviet Union on that front. But how much of Hitler's thinking was tied to solving Germany's strategic geographic problem of being in the heart of Europe between or among so many powerful states and that they just had to figure out a way operationally to overcome it. Yeah, I, I think that's, I think that's precisely the, the starting point for, for Hitler's strategic thinking. He was very well aware of the, <clears throat> of the geographical limitations on Germany. He was, he was acutely aware of the conundrum Germany was in, in the 1930s. And uh, even by the late thir- 1930s after frantic rearmament, Hitler was acutely aware of the of the um, of the paradox, the conundrum that that Germany didn't have the resources militarily or in terms of raw materials industrially to successfully fight a war for European dominance or potentially even world dominance against its against its assumed enemies, 
uh, Great Britain, the, the France, the Soviet Union, the United States, all large empires or continent states. So in order to in order to convert Germany into a world power, Germany would have to conquer the resources it needed to be a world power. But that poses that conundrum. In the short term, Germany doesn't have the resources it needs to win the war it, it has to fight to become a world power. So Hitler was always aware of that conundrum and Blitzkrieg was meant to kind of bridge that, that period of vulnerability. Hitler was also aware of the time conundrum that, that the longer he waited, and if, if he patiently waited to build up German military strength, Germany would never achieve any sort of edge because by 1938, 1939, not only was Great Britain now rearming, but also the United States had begun to rearm. And one of the lesser known things about Hitler is the fact that, that Hitler was very acutely aware of the long-term potential and long-term danger emanating from the United States. In fact, in, in many of the decisions he's taking here in 1938, 1939, 1940, 1941, they're made uh, specifically with his, because of his acute consciousness of the of the of the looming power of the United States that Hitler always has a very strong sense that time is against him so geography has kind of conspired against Hitler against Germany resource allocation has conspired against Germany and now time is conspiring against Hitler so that's that's that sense of urgency that he has to he has to get this done he he conceives that there's a kind of a window of opportunity between 1939 and 1941. That's when everything has to be achieved. That's when Germany has to, to launch this war. It has to, um, it has to use these new operational methods to achieve success. And it has to, it has to um, gain access to the resources it needs um, because of, of Hitler's sense that sooner or later the United States will enter the war and there's going to be sooner or later a showdown between the United States and uh, between Nazi Germany or German dominated Europe and the United States. Yeah. It seems to me that, go ahead, please. I was going to say, just to finish up, one of the ironies you mentioned about Blitzkrieg didn't work as well as they assumed. You know, one of the ironies of Blitzkrieg in France, which evidently was spectacularly successful, the, the conquest of France gained Germany industrial resources, but in, in many respects, it actually strained their raw material situation because France notably had to import most of its raw materials too. So now Germany was responsible for, for supplying raw materials to France as well. So that's one of the ironies about the failure of Blitzkrieg, as it were. And another irony to append to that is the fact that before they invaded, before Germany invaded the Soviet Union in June 1941, the Soviet Union was supplying Germany with with immense amounts of raw materials that Germany needed to be able to invade the Soviet Union. But once it invaded the Soviet Union, that flow of raw materials was cut off the very raw materials materials it needed to sustain its invasion of the Soviet Union. Have I got my logic correct? Yes, that's the ultimate paradox. You, you've got it exactly correct. And 
And and Hitler and, and, and some of his generals, some of his political associates raised that paradox with Hitler. Why invade the Soviet Union? Because the Soviets are at the moment faithfully supplying the raw materials. But Hitler's response was yes, essentially yes, at the moment. They're, but we're at their but we're at their mercy. Yes, we're at their mer- mercy. And 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 can you trust Stalin? Of what what are Stalin's ultimate intentions and what are Stalin's ultimate goals? So once again, it comes back to that sense of ultimate vulnerability. Hitler again had that always that sense of Germany's at the mercy of outside forces that never controls its own fate. And even here, when things seem to be going good and the Soviet Union is supplying all the all these resources, there is reason to suppose that Stalin is doing this only until such time as the Red Army is ready for, for a war of aggression. And, 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 and certainly Stalin's, um, Stalin's territorial ambitions lie in the very same area that Hitler's territorial ambitions lie. So Hitler understood the underlying conflict there. Those of us who are history lovers to one degree or another are fond of what's called counterfactuals or what ifs, great what ifs of history. And there's certainly no shortage of what ifs when it comes to World War II. And there are um, books upon books written about it. They're pretty fascinating. But the two biggest what ifs for me are basically related to Hitler's mentality. What if Hitler had not invaded Soviet and what if Hitler had not declared war on the United States? I think on December 11th, 1941. You talk about that a little bit in your book, uh, more about the Soviet Soviet Union side. But is it fair to say that in Hitler's mind, both conflicts were inevitable, and it was just a matter of when? Yeah, I, I think that I think that's a good again a good character characterization and. In terms of declaring the war on the United States, Hitler's miscalculation essentially was not essentially a mistake in declaring the war on the United States. Roosevelt would certainly have declared war on Germany because the American military had already assessed Germany as a greater threat than Japan. Essentially, what Hitler's doing again, and you see, if you see the situation through his perspective, it's kind of interesting how he, in, in a sense, is making a rational assessment. He Ultimately, the assessment fails, but he's making a logical, rational assessment. Up until the um, up until Pearl Harbor, all through um, well, second half of 1940, all through the first, all through 1941, in fact, there's been essentially an, an undeclared naval war in the in the Atlantic um, with American forces, American naval forces, actively uh, aiding the British and trying to not only hunt down, but now also actively trying to sink German submarines in the North Atlantic. Hitler has restrained his Navy, uh, much to the displeasure of his, of his admirals. Hitler has ordered the German Navy all through 1941 not to respond by trying to um, sink American vessels because he doesn't want to give Roosevelt an excuse as the Imperial German government gave Wilson the excuse to intervene in, in, a, in a British-German war. With the um, Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor, though, what Hitler, uh, Hitler's reasoning goes like this. Japan is powerful enough 
to keep the United States preoccupied in the Pacific. So the American, uh, the American attention will have to be shifted of necessity to the Pacific, American supplies, American aid, American material flowing to Great Britain will be sharply cut. I might as well go ahead then and declare war on the United States and unleash the German submarines because the United States is gonna pre be preoccupied for the, for, the, for the next couple of years fighting in the Pacific anyway. And they're going to be greatly reducing the flow of supplies to the, to the British and if I unleash German submarines, that might very well cut this reduced flow of supplies to Great Britain anyway. So I've got, I've got nothing to lose, basically, and all of this to gain. Of course, in retrospect, and, and at the time, nobody quite knew this. I don't think even Churchill quite understood the, the awesome might, potential might of the United States. In retrospect, it, it, of course, it looks it looks dumber than it did at the time because <laughs> not only could fight Japan in the Pacific, but also uh, Germany in the Atlantic simultaneously. Nobody thought that that was possible at the time. So in retrospect, it looks more reckless than it did. In, t in terms of the Soviet Union, my response, and I don't mean to be flippant, flippant about this, but but. Uh, Without attacking the Soviet Union, Hitler was not Hitler. Nazism was not Nazism. Uh, the, the, the better counterfactual in terms of getting at the essence of Hitler is what if, what if Hitler's gamble had proved right in 1939? What if the British and French had decided to stay out and just simply give Germany a free hand in the East as, as he assumed they would, having sacrificed this better position? Um, the, the wrong war for Hitler, in terms of many people say, well, well, Hitler's big mistake was it, he, he went wrong when he attacked the Soviet Union. No, from Hitler's perspective, the wrong war was not the war against the Soviet Union. It was the necessity of having to fight the war in the West. That was always the wrong war from, from Hitler's perspective. And that's, that's, that's what he could never quite figure out. He could never he, he had a he had kind of a handle on some of the of the appeasers in Britain, but he could never get a handle on somebody like Churchill, uh, who wanted to fight on despite the seemingly um, hopeless position Britain was in after the fall of France. He could never never understand why Hitler or excuse me he he could never understand why Churchill didn't see reason um, and understand that if. Britain stayed in the war, as Hitler predicted to Goebbels and his closest associates as early as early 1942, if Britain persisted in the war, the certain outcome Hitler uh, predicted would be the collapse of the British Empire and Great Britain would simply collapse to become a satellite nation of the United States. Um, that was clearly obvious to Hitler that, that Britain could not survive World War II as a great power. And so he could never quite understand why Churchill persisted in, from his point of view, an illogical war against Germany because it was against Britain's long-term interests as a great power to stay in this war. He pro if he had lived long enough, he probably would have laughed at Anthony Eden and the Suez crisis and said, hey, I predicted this 15 years ago. You yeah, should exactly. listen to me. Exactly. exactly. At, at the very end of the war, basically, he said... Um, in, in his last, in, in some of his last uh, kind of predictions to Martin Bormann, 
He basically said that Britain, Britain and France are finished as major powers. After the defeat of Germany, there will only be two powers left in the, in the world, uh, the United States and the Soviet Union. The logic of history dictates that the, the United States and Soviet Union will come into an inevitable conflict over world dominance, over global, global uh, preeminence. And then both of them will seek to, um, to secure the support of the only remaining potential great nation in Europe, that is Germany. And so if you think of the way in which the Cold War <laughs> unfolded, uh, the, the United States versus the United States for, for global preeminence, and we each had our, we each had our German satellites. So uh, it was kind of, kind of frightening, his prediction there. And that leads me to the question that I we talked about before we started recording, and that is, and you you mentioned I think it's towards the end of your book, maybe maybe at the very end, where in evaluating Hitler, and in taking the 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 scholastically uh, true way of evaluating him as a military commander, you're just forced to say. Okay, he got these things right. He was smart about these things. He was prescient about these matters. He made these decisions uh, in a correct manner, and and they came to fruition in a way that that benefited Germany. Writing all that, while at the same time the gas chambers are working twenty four seven at Treblinka or Auschwitz or Dachau, is a tough spot to be in for. An historian, how did you manage to navigate these twin truths while giving Hitler his due for getting some things right? Yeah, that's a, that's, that's a, it's always difficult, and, and and I always when I'm writing, I always keep that in not in the back of my mind, but in the front of my mind. Um, I met, I'd mentioned my third book, Ostkrieg, um, Hitler's War of Extermination in the East, and. One of the things I, had, I, I did in Austria that I had wanted to do was, was um, mesh the Holocaust with World War II. Um, too often, I think, in, in historical writing, too often in, in popular memory, World War II, I think, is dissociated. The Holocaust is, is not associated with World War II. So one of the things I wanted to emphasize in, in my book, Oskrieg, was that without German success in World War II, without Hitler's military success in World War II, the Holocaust would not have happened. The Holocaust would not have been possible if the German military had not been spectacularly successful between 1939 and the end of 1942. So that, that was always in my mind as I was writing this, trying to kind of get it a and, and a, an objective assessment of Hitler as a military leader. And what I tried to keep reminding myself was, in the end, despite political skill or military skill, you can't divorce the objects of policy from the, from, from the, from the military skill. Hitler showed political skill in the 30s. He showed military skill, certainly in the first half of World War II. But I always tried to keep in mind what the object of his policy was. And of course, the object of his policy was a war of extermination. It was a radical racial restructuring of Eastern Europe, which included not just the Jewish population of Eastern Europe. We're in the West here. We're most familiar with the Holocaust, uh, of course, which led to the death of 
perhaps as many as 6 million European Jews. Most Americans are far less uh, cognizant of Hitler's larger racial plans to restructure the, the conquered territories of East Central Europe and European Russia, what, he, what the Germans called General Plan East. Under the auspices of Ger General Plan East, uh, Nazi uh, economic and, and social demographic planners estimated as maybe a, as many as 30 to 45 million Slavs would have to die in order to accomplish the racial restructuring of Europe. So what I tried to get what I tried to get across in the book was that the essence of eventually of, of Hitler's Hitler's most fundamental mistake, I suppose, was not as a military leader. His most fundamental mistake was as a political leader because his goals were ultimately so radical and so extreme and they were so murderous and they were so genocidal that they that they elicited absolute opposition to him. Um, Hitler didn't see Hitler per, perceived the war as a total war, but he didn't seem well, maybe he did understand. Maybe that's why he persisted to the end. His political goals were so wildly extreme that um, his enemies would would persist to the end against him. Um, so so uh, as I tried to point out that in certain circumstances, Hitler certainly had displayed some some political or military acuity. Ultimately, that the very radicalism and the very murderous nature of his goal uh, undermined whatever whatever political or military insights he had because um, he he would elicit absolute total opposition now i've had i've had 10 years of french so when i mispronounce this german word please don't be too harsh in your book the first soldier hitler as military leader you do a terrific job of explaining Hitler's concept of and maniacal drive for something that is called Lebensraum. Am I close? Lebensraum. <laughs> See, but, well, you've, how much German do you use? You got me there. <laughs> I did the best I could. I apologize that I'd read that in other books and it's not glossed over, but it's not a real theme. In your book, you, you do a fantastic job of explaining just how important that was to Hitler. That was one of his underlying foundations. And basically it is, he is looking for living space in the East. Right. He can only find, he's looking for, he's looking for it anywhere. He can only find it in the East. Right. Which means that the clash between the Soviet Union and Nazi Germany is inevitable. How much did this maniacal drive for territorial expansion ruin him as a military leader yeah that's again that's a very good that's a very good point very good question Lebensraum was fundamental to, to Hitler's whole conception um, you can't have national socialism without without the conception of Lebensraum the lack of raw materials, the lack of foodstuffs, the lack of vital resources, Hitler um, held responsible for Germany's defeat in World War I. The only way to obtain these essentially was to carve out a colonial empire like the British and French had, which, which was 
that, that was a non-starter because the British and French controlled all the best territory anyway. The only alternative was um, territorial expansion in, 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 in areas contiguous to your, to your home territory, to your, to your country, which meant East Central Europe and, and uh, European Russia. Um, he was stubbornly persistent in labor. I mean, that's, that's, the, that's, the set, that's essentially the, the central goal of the war of extermination, this, 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 this war of aggression and conquest, because uh, the acquisition of Lebensraum is the, is the central factor which will transform Germany from a wannabe European power into a global power. Hitler, in fact, over and over ridiculed uh, the politicians of Imperial Germany. <clears throat> he ridiculed conservative politicians in the 20s and 30s, German politicians, um, for wanting simply to destroy the Treaty of Versailles and restore the borders of um, 1918. 1914, 1914, we'll say. He ridiculed that because his understanding that, that given the borders of 1914, Germany wasn't even a dominant European power, let alone a global power. Germany wasn't on a par with, with the French Empire or the British Empire or the Russian Empire or potentially the American Empire because even before World War I, Germany was constructed constricted geographically and resource-wise, the only way to make Germany a, a great power was to obtain these, these resources. He literally meant that. In German, Lebensraum means living space. And he literally meant that. Without Lebensraum, Germany would not have the resources to be a, a, a great power. So um, his stubborn pursuit of it was absolutely fundamental to the to his war effort, his stubborn pursuit of it, of it was absolutely fundamental to um, creating the united opposition against him. You're a university professor. So uh, two quick questions. How would you grade Hitler as a military commander? And is there any real evidence or sense that Hitler performed much better or much worse than any other modern military commander at his level. Good, good questions. I, I guess if I, if I'm grading and I've been seemingly grading it, uh, incessantly at this time of the semester, um, I'd probably give Hitler like a C plus, B minus, something like that. <clears throat> he his paper started out well, but then it did deteriorate. <laughs> I can, if I can be flippant there, but um, yeah, I mean, obviously he had strengths and weaknesses. He certainly, he certainly perceived um, the larger strategic issues, I think, better than, than any of his other generals. German generals were famously good at tactics. German generals were quite good at operational schemes. German generals were notoriously bad at understanding strategic consequences, strategic uh, calculations. And that's one of the things that frustrated Hitler over and over. And he would constantly complain that his generals didn't understand economics or his generals didn't understand uh, foreign policy, for example. Um, in relation to other leaders, I don't know. Stalin, oftentimes the, 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 the comparison is made with Stalin, who interfered uh, enormously with his generals early on in the war. And then 
grudgingly became came to trust some of his generals, but after killing hundreds of them before the war ever started, after, after killing off most of the others, Hitler, in, the, in fact, by the by the end of the war, Hitler rude the fact that he had not been decisive like Stalin and killed most of his generals at the beginning. So I don't know what that means, but, but I, 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 I don't know. I, I think that's, I think that's kind of an artificial uh, sort of comparison. You can, you can compare um, Hitler to Churchill, but Churchill uh, as one of Churchill's military advisors said, Churchill had a, a hundred ideas a day, one, maybe one of which were good, a good idea. Hitler, but Churchill had all sorts of harebrained ideas. So, um, in some respects, of, of his contemporaries, um, maybe the person who comes out the best is Franklin Roosevelt, because Roosevelt had the good sense to know that he didn't know all that much about military matters, and he had the good sense to rely on George Marshall and um, and some other very competent. Uh, military leaders to get the job done. So that might that might be the that might be the best comparison that people like Hitler and Stalin running obviously totalitarian dictatorships. They're they're not only military leaders, but by necessity or by by their their inclinations, they're also political dictators. They have to interfere. Churchill thought himself a military genius, so he had to interfere. Roosevelt understood that his limitations. And so he relied on competent military leaders. So I would say of the, of the people of that generation, probably Roosevelt comes out the best in, in terms of, um, of the, of the big four or five mili- uh, you know, political military leaders at the time. Tojo, uh, the prime minister of Japan is a, add him to the list of people who underestimated Yamamoto seemed to get what the United States was capable of, and he may have been the only person in Japan at the time. I'm going to ask you a very quick answer on one more what if, which I meant to ask you a few minutes ago and didn't. Then we'll get to the five questions with which we end all Leaders and Legends podcasts. Japan staying out of the war between Germany and the Soviet Union, especially early, 41, 42. How important was that? to the Soviet Union's ultimate victory in the West. Yeah, in many, in many, in many respects, that was the key. And um, one of the failures of Hitler was that uh, he, Hitler was not able to form an, as, as an effective coalition of allies as say Britain or America or the Soviet Union. German, Diplomats tried diligently to convince the Japanese to enter the war in the summer of 1941 against the Soviet Union. Japanese calculations were based on, I think, two key factors very quickly. One, and again, it's not as well known in this country as it perhaps it is in, in Europe. Uh, the Soviets and the Japanese had fought a series of border conflicts in 1937, 38, 39 out in Manchuria. The border conflict in in the summer of 1939 in Manchuria had been had come close to, to becoming a pretty much an all out war. Uh, the, the 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 upshot of of this of the of these border conflicts in the summer of 1939 was that the Red Army had inflicted a, a serious defeat on the Japanese army in Manchuria, which influenced Japanese perceptions of the Soviet Union. Um, and which made it, which made attacking 
the defunct uh, French Empire in Indochina much more attractive, the Dutch Empire um, in uh, the Dutch East Indies much more attractive to the Japanese than, than taking on the Soviets. There was a moment in late July of 1941 when it looked as if the Germans might finally be able to, to persuade the, the um, Japanese to enter the war, to overcome their hesitations and their perception of the Soviet military. And the German argument was, well, look, here, look, in, in late July 1941, we're on the verge of victory. We're, in another few weeks, we, we will have broken the final Soviet resistance at Smolensk and we'll win the war. And, and so you, you have nothing to lose. You can get in on, on the victory now. Japanese ambassador in Moscow, the Japanese military attache in Moscow were all relaying back to Tokyo a different message. Um, and the message they were relaying back to Tokyo was quite clear. Germany is not going to be able to defeat the Soviet Union, not in 1941 and not ever. And so that was the crucial point. Um, who does the Japanese government believe? Do they, do they believe the Germans who are entreating them to enter the war, or do they believe their own officials in Moscow? And not surprisingly, they chose to believe their own officials in Moscow who said that Germany could not win. We end the Leaders and Legends podcast with the same five questions. Are you ready, Professor Fritz? Okay, not too fast, though. <laughs> no, and I promise they're not in German either. Number one, what was your first job? My first my first actual job or my first job in academia? <laughs> your first actual job? My first actual job was actually working for my father, who ran a grain business about um, 100 miles uh to the west of Indianapolis there. In fact, I grew up in a small farm town almost exactly halfway between Indianapolis and St. Louis on, on Interstate 70. So he was in the grain business. So for my, my first job was actually uh, shoveling grain and, and, and you know, all those, those nasty farm jobs. <laughs> <laughs> Number two, what was your first concert? My first concert... My first concert, I think, if I remember right, it's been a long time ago. My first, uh, my first real concert was 1969, The Rolling Stones, which was a, a phenomenal concert. Uh, it, because I mean, uh, even the, even the, even the, all the, all the uh, warm-up groups were, were phenomenal. So it was, it was an incredible concert. Was that out of? At one of those music festivals, or did they just no, play by themselves? Of all things, it was at the University of Illinois. Number three, if you could suggest any book for someone to read, which book would you recommend? I could suggest any book. Well, that's a that's a good question. Hmm. Any book? Well, not to think about that, but. Right off the top of my head, since we've been talking Germany and politics and so forth, I'll I'll, I'll mention one of my favorite books is um, is the Magic Mountain by Thomas Mann, simply because it's a, it's a brilliant uh, kind of intellectual novel in which he lays out uh, rather brilliantly all of the tensions and conflicts in Europe on the um, on the eve of World War One. I've read it now 
I guess, three times. It's like it's like a 700-page book. It's a typical big German novel, but it's a <laughs> it's a brilliant sort of intellectual novel. Do you just very quickly? Do you have a favorite biography of Hitler? My, well, yeah, it kind of comes and goes. Ian Kershaw's is, is is an extraordinarily good biography. Although I've just read and 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 I've reviewed one of the volumes. There's um there's a new biography out in the last couple of years in English translation by a German uh, journalist slash historian named Volker Volker Ulrich. And his his biography, uh, two volume biography, is extraordinarily well written, and I think it's it's very insightful into Hitler the person, perhaps more insightful into Hitler the person than Kershaw. So I would say either the Kershaw or now this new new biography by Volker Earl Ulrich. These questions get harder, especially if you're an, an historian. Question <laughs> number four: If you could witness any event in history be there as it happens, which event would you choose? Um, I'm, a, I'm a great, one of, one of the people I admire most in history, and I've always thought if I could meet one person in history, the person I would like to meet would be Abraham Lincoln. So if I, if I could be at any event, I think it would be Lincoln's uh, second inauguration, listening to his his inaugural speech. I think I think that's what I would pick. You could have stood next to John Wilkes Booth. That's right. Yeah, maybe I could stop the booth. (laughs) (laughs) Last question. A little bit about, uh, it's almost what you just mentioned, but a little bit of a twist. If you could have dinner with anyone living today, two hours off the record, whom would you choose? Wow, two hours living today. Hmm. Anybody off the record? That's a really, that's a really, really good one. Hmm. I don't know. I'm a I'm a European historian, so I'm I'm always inclined to 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 to, to think of somebody in Europe. But the Queen. But now I'm I'm trying to think of who's still alive. <laughs> <laughs> you have a fa- you have a favorite sports hero? Oh my my favorite sports hero. Growing up where I grew up, of course, I was a diehard St. Louis Cardinals fan. So. My two my two overwhelming sports heroes were uh, Stan Musial and Bob Gibson, uh, both of both of whom are both of whom are dead now. Um, I and for, unfortunately he he's he's dead now. But probably if I could if I could talk with anybody, um, I would have talked with uh, actually probably Helmut Kohl and, and get his get his um, insight into German reunification. So. Probably the de- next best um, thing would be to talk to to uh, Angela Merkel, uh, the present Chancellor of Germany, and get her insight, being an East German, on um, her thoughts on on German reunification. So that's probably what 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 I would do. Maybe Gorbachev, get his thoughts, get his ideas on 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 what went wrong. <laughs> <laughs> you have been listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by. Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmond Construction, Leaders and Legends LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. Our guest has been Professor Stephen Fritz, author of The First Soldier, Hitler as Military Leader. Professor Fritz, it's been a hoot. 
I enjoyed the conversation. Thank you very much for your time. Yeah, I have enjoyed it too. And and, I, and thanks for the very uh, thoughtful questions. I enjoyed your questions. They they were amongst the best I've I've ever had. Thank you. That's very, very kind. Thank you very much for listening to Leaders and Legends, brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated. If you want to contact us about this program or our menu of public relations services, please send us an email at robert at veteranstrategies.com. That's robert at veteranstrategies.com. Thank you.